Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It is, uh, it's Friday. Happy Friday. It's Friday. If you don't know that song, go find it and thank Pastor PJ for that later. We're, We're going to have a song Black. for every day of the week because we mentioned that there are no songs about Mondays and our faithful listeners, all three of them, let us know. Contributed. They said, hey, wait a minute. Actually, there are plenty of songs about Mondays. I didn't realize that there were so many and the mamas and the papas. I got that one more than once. Right. Yeah. That one came through multiple times. But uh, hey, it is Friday. We hope that you've had a great week. We hope that you're excited about the weekend and we hope that the the church, the local church is a big part of that weekend. Our local church at Compass Bible Church, North Texas, we will be gathering again Sunday night and we hope to see you there. But as the plane lands for another week, we are uh, grateful for you tuning in and we are continuing as always Saturday and Sunday as, as well. So uh, keep tuning in, keep reading your Bible and keep joining us for the Daily Bible Podcast. But yeah. we are finishing up the book of Esther today. Let's do it. I'm excited about this. Esther chapter seven. Dramatic conclusion. Chapter eight, chapter nine. And chapter 10. Chapter 10 is really short though. Chapter 10 doesn't really, I mean, it count. It counts because it's the Bible. No. No? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's entirely God breathed except. It's an epilogue. So it's less a chapter, more of an epilogue. It's like a including, sneeze. Yes. Yeah. It's like a chew and there's chapter 10. Yep. Yeah. Chapter seven, um, Man, things don't go well for Haman. This is just this is just not happening the way that Haman wanted it to. We left off. You remember the the king had been talking to Haman and saying, "Hey, what do you think should be done for somebody that the king wants to honor?" Haman mistakenly thinks he's thinking about him. He says, "Oh, here's what you should do." The king says, "Go do that for Mordecai." But Haman still thinks he's going to get the last laugh with this 75-foot gallows that he's built for Mordecai. But chapter 7 comes, and uh, while they're there, they, the the feast part two happens. Remember, there, there was the feast part one, and, and Esther said, hey, can, can we do this again? And so they're all three brought to, back together. The king and Esther and Haman are back together again. Drinking again. Drinking again. Yep. Once and uh, the king says, what do you want? You know, up to half my kingdom, what, what do you want? I will give you what you want. It shall be fulfilled. And she pulls back the curtain. And here's the big reveal, and it's in verse three. And I, I just wonder how white Haman's face must have gotten when he realized what was going down at this point. Because she says there, if it please the king, <laughs> let my life be granted to me and, and my people for my request. And, and there, there it is. And it, this is the big reveal. And she says, my, my people have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, she said, I wouldn't protest. But but because this is about the extermination of my people, I have to say something. I have to speak up. And, and uh, understandably, King Ahasuerus, is, he's angry. He's upset about this. He says, who who would do such a thing? Who is the person? And you got to think Haman's just like slinking out of the back of the, <laughs> the, the feast hall at this point. And she says, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then it says Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You remember earlier, Esther in chapter four was deeply distressed. And we talked about how that may, meant that she was terrified over what was going on. And now uh, the tables have turned quite literally and, and Haman is the one that is quaking and terrified. And, and the king is so angry he has to leave. And he walks out and Haman, meanwhile, 
uh, foolishly uh, falls on the, the the couch as they would have been reclining on these couches to eat at the time. And she, he falls on the couch of Queen Esther and, and begins to beg for his life. The king comes in and mistakes that he's trying to make advances on Esther. And uh, that makes him even more angry and orders that Haman be hanged on the very gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. What a dramatic reversal. And one thing I would like to point out that I noticed is that there's a lot of a lot of wine drinking here. <laughs> so notice in verse 7, he, he, he arose in wrath from the wine drinking. So he's in a drunken rage. And I would imagine Haman's been drinking too. So he's talking to Esther, like, oh, Esther, please spare my life. He falls upon her, I'm guessing, you know, because he's stumbling from his drinking. The king walks in and he's still intoxicated and infuriated. And he sees this unfold and he's like, wow, man, you have some goal. I could just imagine slurring his speech. All this is happening in kind of a hairy rat's nest of activity. And God is accomplishing exactly what he wants mm. in precisely the way that he planned, all mm. while using the sinfulness of man. Absolutely. I, I, I thought about how God is doing this and, uh, and just the connection that came to my mind was Galatians 6, 7, where Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And so here you have this wicked man in Haman trying to exterminate the people of God. And all the while, even though it's in the background and it may be more subtle, God is not going to be mocked by this man, Haman. In fact, in a divine uh, twist of irony, God kind of mocks Haman, even in this death, by causing Haman to be executed on the very gallows that he had set up for Mordecai's execution. And Mordecai's execution was really kind of, in a lot of ways, symbolic for the extermination of the entirety of God's people, which is what Haman's end was at the in in his mind the whole time. Remember the the conflict there between the, the history of the Malachites and the Israelites. And in Haman, as a descendant of the Amalekites, wanted Israelites to be gone and off the face of the planet. And here God uh, is not mocked and Haman reaps what he sowed and uh, and he ends up dying executed on that. But we still have the problem, right? Things are still not good. And in chapter eight, that that's kind of where we pick up. Esther's still somewhat in distress because the edict from the king has gone out. And, uh, and the law could not just be changed. It's not like the king could stand up and say, hey, never mind. Just kidding. And so the king basically says, Hey, what do you want? What do you want me to do? He, in the meantime, promotes Mordecai. Mordecai is, is exalted to the position basically that Haman had. Mm -hmm. And he's given the king's signet ring, which meant that he had the authority to write on behalf of the king and, and sign things and, and give the king's, uh, the king's stamp and, uh, and seal on documents. And so the king says, write what you want to write, uh, do what you want to do on this. And, and I'm behind you on this. And so even though he couldn't undo what he did, basically what happens in chapter eight and then in chapter nine is the king uh, gives Mordecai the permission to write to the Jewish people to say, hey, defend yourselves. And any enemies that are looking to hurt the Jews understand that that they have full uh, royal authority to retaliate and to defend themselves mm -hmm. and to go after you. And in chapter nine, that's exactly what happens. Uh, it says, I, I love the way that chapter nine opens in, in verse one. It says, uh, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day, it says, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Mm. And this is intense. I mean, there's there's 500 people killed there in the immediate province, so much so that the king calls Esther and says, what's going to happen after, outside of this province? If this is happening here, what's, ha what's going to happen beyond this? And we find that out down in verse 16. It says 75,000 of the Jewish enemies were, were killed on that day. Crazy. Um, as God protects his people. And coming out of all of this is the, the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated today in Israel. It's a... a, a, a 
feast of of partying and happiness and joyfulness and there's gifts that are exchanged. In fact, when we were in Israel in 2019, as we took a team there, there this was during Purim and we got to observe some of the, the feasting and celebration there. Now it's largely divorced from the significance of its origins here in Esther. It's, it's more of a secularized kind of just fun holiday that everybody mm-hmm. takes an advantage to throw a party. But, uh, but this is where the roots of the feast of Purim come from is the deliverance of the people from the book of Esther. Chapter 10 kind of dictates or, or gives a, a brief um, sketch of the rest of, of Mordecai's career there. It says in verse 3, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king. Think about that. I mean, he went from sackcloth and ashes and mourning outside the king's gate to now he's at the end of it second in command uh, to the king there. And so, yes, is God mentioned in the book of Esther? No. But is God present in the book of Esther? I think it's undoubtedly evident that he is. And that's what's important for us to walk away with, that even in our own lives, if there's an apparent absence of God, there's no such thing as a, a, a place within the universe where God's presence does not dwell. Think about the psalmist. If I go up to the highest heavens or if I go down to the depths of Sheol, you are there. And in the book of Esther, that's no less true. Even in situations where the evil are plotting against the good, or I don't even know if Esther and Mordecai would be considered good, but they're certainly the protagonists in this story. And in this story, we see that God's providential hand is always at work. And again, I come back to the conclusion that I gave, I think, two episodes ago, maybe one episode ago. Nothing is an accident in God's economy. Everything that happens in the Christian life is is a moment where God has designed it. The question for us is is why, Mm -hmm. what purpose, what's God trying to accomplish with this? And I think that's a harder question to answer for us. We can always know God does, does all things for at least two reasons. It is his glory and our good, assuming that you're in Christ. Therefore, anything that does happen to you, however small or large, is is a moment for you to pause, to recognize that God's in control, and he's doing good things in your life for his glory. Mm, Absolutely. It's it's also an encouragement for us, I think, as we look at the the current geopolitical landscape as as Christians, as we look in the, the news and we look at all these different headlines and we see it's it's tempting for us to say, God, where are you? What are you doing right now? I mean, things are just spinning out of control. And it's a reminder to us, again, Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked, right? And so even though it may not be happening the way that we anticipate things happening or expect things to happen or where the way we would want them to happen, God is still at work. To your point, Pastor Rod, everything is happening according to his plan, according to his perfect outworking here. And as Christians, we can trust that and stay faithful to what he's calling us to do, which is going to have a big theme in the next book that we're going to study in the Old Testament, the book of Job. And we'll hit that starting tomorrow morning. So much of it. But... We're not done today because we've got our New Testament portion, which is the book of Acts and uh, Acts chapter six. In Acts chapter six, we find a situation facing the church there as it was growing and burgeoning. There were uh, needs that were arising. There were people that need to be cared for and there were widows and there were um, uh, others that that needed uh, attention. And th- the problem arose because everyone was kind of looking at the apostles going, okay, you, what are you guys going to do? We've got widows that need food and, and help and we've got other things going on. Tables need to be served, so to speak. And the apostles make this statement here in verse two, when they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. This is the genesis of where we get the office of the deacon in scripture, deacon from a Greek word, diakonos, which means servant. And that's what 
the, the early church was was installing here were these men. Uh, there's questions down the road uh, were there deaconesses, and I think we can argue pretty safely that there probably were deaconesses in the early church as well. This mm-hmm. is not like the role of elder right. or pastor. This is a role that is open to both men and women as, as a deacon, but they were appointed and, and they list those that are appointed here. Stephen is one of them. We're going to get into a Stephen's life a little bit in the rest of chapter six, but a lot in chapter seven here, uh, but they were there to allow and free up the apostles to do the preaching of the word. And, uh, and that still exists in the church today. The primary role of, of the pastor teacher shepherd is, is the, the role of preaching and shepherding the flock. And there are other roles that are important, absolutely important to the, the uh, ongoing daily activities of the church, but that God has created this role of deacon or deaconess or servant or ministry leader or whatever your church may call them. Or our church often calls them ministry directors or ministry leaders. Um, that uh, as we're getting this church plant going, sometimes coordinators, things like that, that mm. step into these roles and, and help the church function in such important ways that free the pastors up, in this case, Pastor Rod and myself, to uh, the roles of a prayer and the administering of the word through preaching and counseling and other ministries like that. Would you see any difference between the apostle and the pastor? Yes. In in the sense of the apostles here in the office of the apostle was reserved for somebody who was an eyewitness of the the earthly ministry of Christ. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Pastor Rod and I, you're not going to go to compassntx.org and find Apostle PJ and Apostle Rod are here to um, you know, to, to give the word of God. We are not in that office. That office is a unique office. That office was, is closed at this point. Um, Paul was the last one, right? And so we are pastors, but nonetheless, our job is still primarily as Paul instructed Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, right? That the, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, which is the, the scriptures. Second Timothy three sixteen, all scriptures, God breathed in, in useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness. Ephesians four, that he's given shepherds and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, right? That as, as pastors is our primary task and responsibility in the church. And so in that sense, we have parallels here, though it's not a one-for-one correlation. Right. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. Continuity. We're not apostles, we're not prophets in the way that they were, but the continuity is the church depended upon teachers of the word of God, and that's reserved today for uh, for pastors slash elders slash overseers, and that's an important role that the church can really be helpful to. The church steps up in service and support roles to allow the pastors to do what they're called to do best. One of these guys that is appointed is a guy named Stephen, and oh. Stephen is uh, a, a guy that I... I Hopefully, we'll one day get to meet at, at some point and find him in, in eternity in the New Jerusalem and, and spend some time talking with him because he just seems like an amazing, amazing guy. And, and we don't get a whole lot of his backstory here. We get his qualifications here because it says they, they were looking for men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And and here, Stephen is one of those men. And I so, praise. yeah, Stephen is is uh, is grabbed and put into this role. And in the rest of chapter six, he begins to do some pretty powerful things, so much so that he catches the attention of what's called the synagogue of the freedmen um, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia. And they rise up and they're upset. They don't like what Stephen's doing because they don't like the church. They don't like seeing the expansion of Christianity, the expansion of what was known as the way at the time. And so they uh, bring up false accusations against Stephen. 
And this is not the first time we've seen this. It happened with Jesus too, right? They were looking for false charges against Jesus as well. And, uh, and so they bring up false charges against Stephen and they say that he was speaking ill of, uh, words against, as it's put there in verse 13, the, the holy place, the temple and the law, the Jewish scriptures there. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place again. Uh, interesting here, right? Because Jesus was accused of saying he would destroy the temple and that's right. some of the charges brought against him. And here you have Stephen and Stephen is accused of the same things. Um, he's saying Jesus, he's quoting Jesus saying Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then it says there in verse 15, and this really probably should go with verse with chapter seven rather than chapter six, but mm. uh, it's there in chapter six. It says in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Um, what does that mean? Well, and and this gets into the chapter division here. Mm. What was typically traditional at this time was the accused had a chance to respond to the accusations. They were given a platform. And so I think that's what's happening in verse 15. And that's why I say I think it should go with chapter 7 because chapter 7 is Stephen's response. But I think in verse 15, after these accusation have been, uh, accusations have been leveled, everybody turns and looks at Stephen. And they look at Stephen, I think, expecting to see a man who's um, vitriolic against them or hostile towards them or angry about these false charges or mm. you know, incensed that they would dare you know, bring these accusations against him. And what they find instead is, is just a, a serene calm about him. And, and, and that's what I think this is referring to here. When it says uh, the face like an angel, I think there was a, a, a piece. I think this, we think about Philippians four, right? When Paul says that we, uh, when we take our request to the Lord, our anxieties to the Lord, that, that we receive the peace that surpasses all understanding. Mm. I think that's a little bit of what they're seeing here in the face of Stephen as Stephen prepares to give his defense. Yeah. And I think the thing I like about that is it provides a model for us. When we experience opposition or someone countering our faith, we can be unruffled, unmoved in our demeanor and have confidence, a quiet and humble confidence that doesn't rely upon favorable circumstances. Mm. Uh, clearly Stephen is outnumbered. And as we learn in chapter seven, verse one, the high priest is part of this group of people that are in opposition to him. So this is no small potatoes gathering. This is the the high, the mighty, some of the most powerful men and perhaps women of that society working their forces against him. And yet he's able to stand there quiet, unmoved, undisturbed, and able to give a very eloquent defense for his position and their opposition. Absolutely. And this is Y'all, this is something that Jesus said was going to happen during his his ministry. He said, they're going to arrest you. They're going to drag you before the synagogues. They're going to drag you before the courts. And you remember what Christ told his disciples. He said, don't worry about what you're going to, what you're supposed to say in that that time. What you're to say is going to be given to you by the spirit. And certainly when we get into chapter seven, I I don't think we can deny that this is a fulfillment, at least in part of, of what Jesus was saying there. And one thing I would, man, I can't wait till we get to chapter seven. One thing that helps Stephen's defense is that this man clearly is saturated with the word of God. Knew and it. that really helps. I yep. mean, well, I'll save my comments about that for tomorrow. But suffice it to say, if you want to be prepared for that moment of opposition, that moment of counterattack, uh, rather, or that the moment attack, be ready for the counterattack by having the word of God, the sword of the spirit at the ready. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, we keep coming back to say things like this, but that's what this podcast is all about. All about. It's not here so that you don't have to do your DBR so that you can kind of get it summarized for you and be like, okay, well, I got it. No, this is a supplement. This is something to come alongside uh, of the word of God, but the word of God is the main course every single day. So make sure that you are taking whatever we're saying here and take it to the scriptures and let it benefit you in the way that God might cause it to benefit you. But aside from that, man, the word of God is where life change takes place. The word of God is the most important thing here. So make sure you're in it every single day with us and we'll catch you tomorrow for another episode of the daily Bible podcast. See y'all. 
Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Daily Bible Podcast.